I do as much storytelling within my frame as I think a writer does when he, in this case, when I wrote the script, and try to tell a beginning, middle, and end, three acts. I put a lot of information into the frame. And often on television, when our widescreen Panavision movies are panned and scanned, you're only seeing half a movie. You're only seeing the pertinent information, usually the actors who are talking and they're performing and the information is being transmitted through their dialogue and through their emotions. But you don't see a lot of what I'm trying to do as a director because the information that's on the left side of the frame, you're just not seeing because your TV sets a square and you're missing out on composition, which is also a form of storytelling. Where the mountain, Devil's Tower is, juxtaposed to where the people are standing. If it's important that you see Devil's Tower next to the people, the camera on television, on, on normal television, has to electronically either pan over to show the tower, which is a pan I never intended to do as I directed the film, or you make an electronic cut or an edit, and you flick over to the left side of the frame, and I never intended a cut to be made there, which takes the rhythm of the scene and just ruins it. Welcome to the Home Theater Forum Podcast. My name is Brian Dobbs. And I'm Sam Poston. And today we're going to be talking about aspect ratios. Yeah, yeah, like the foundational decision on all home theater things. People have a lot of opinions about this. Let's see where we stand. Sam and I are going to touch on the history and why it's important. We won't go into too much depth because there's articles that can explain it better than, than we ever could. But we will certainly link to a lot of different articles and some videos online that can go into depth for each one of these things that we start talking about tonight. So this has been on my mind to talk about for quite some time. I once started off when DVD was coming out in the camp of original aspect ratio, no matter what, I don't care how many black bars are on my 4 by 3 screen, just give it to me the way it was intended. Yeah, for sure. I think since we've had some time since the inception of DVD and now we're into Blu-ray and our screens have gotten bigger, I'm starting to think that my feelings have changed a little bit and we can, we can get into that. But Sam, what's a good 30,000 foot view on why the topic of aspect ratio is important to suss out for each one of our home theaters? Yeah, I mean, it really is a kind of esoteric, geeky type subject matter. And it's something you just kind of set it and forget it and don't worry about it. But it's really been something that's, you know, evolved over time in the history and artistry of film. And so the easiest way I can explain it to people is like, look, if you've got a camera, you've got a lens on the front of it, and that lens actually typically produces an, uh, an image in the form of a circle, right? It's essentially upside down. You've got a circle and you know, you can set your aperture and your film speed and all that. But it's really, really hard to take that image circle and capture it and then play it back for people. So what the early film pioneers did was they said, well, let's be smart about this. We're capturing the celluloid film. Let's take a slice of this circle and then we can project it back. And hey, if we take a square out of that circle, we can get part of that circle that's still in focus, edge to edge, you know, as much as was physically capable in those times, and project that back to them and capture it on square film. 
And so since that time, there's been movements to change the aspect ratio to go even wider than it is tall because it evokes a feeling in people when you have just this wide wall of image that is wider than it is tall. You know, it feels like you're at a real vista, like you're out west and you're looking at the Grand Canyon and just having that wall in front of you that it's ultra wide really works. And so there's also the angle of TV here, right? The first TVs came out, they were 4-3 formatted, which is pretty close to a square, but not exactly. And so that was radically different from the aspect ratios that movies were doing. And so there was essentially 70 years of very, very differing aspect ratios from television to movies. And then in the HD era, we settled on the 16 by 9 grand compromise that all TVs would be reformatted to. And so that is close to ultra-wide, and it captures the old TV 4.3 aspect ratio nicely in the middle. And we'll talk about what it means today to use that 1.78 or 1.85 aspect ratio that 16 by 9 is uh, is formatted in Y. But really, that's the bottom line, right? That there was this history, and it's all based on physics, and then the physics gets muddied by emotion and uh, artistry. And so that that's the really cool part about movies for me is that all of those things have a part to play. We can get into it and what you know which aspect ratios make sense going forward and which are our favorite <laughs> and yeah. you know, how we got here is pretty laid bare and now it's just fighting over the details. You mentioned artistry and I'm wondering now if that's getting in the way of how these films are ultimately preserved for their existence. Yeah, I mean, because film is a very finicky medium, right? The move has been to recapture what was captured on film into the digital domain. You know, that has compromises too. Once you take something from film and digitize it, you're stuck with those pixels. So that's why we've seen you know things that have been remastered into higher and higher bit depths and bit resolutions. And so, yeah, preservation definitely is a, a big concern when we talk about aspect ratios. So let's get back to the inception of film, not necessarily from a photography standpoint, but just making films, moving pictures. The aspect ratio, I think that was most common or what, what they started off with was what the uh, the one three three to one. And I, I have, I clipped a little excerpt here from an article on widescreen.org, which they were talking about how the first known event to be filmed in an aspect ratio wider than the 1.33 to 1 is the Corbett Fitzsimmons boxing match in Carson City, Nevada in 1897. Now, wow. I, first of all, I think having film from 1897, that's just an incredible tidbit there. But 1.33 to 1, that was the standard aspect ratio right. for moving pictures. So films were released in that aspect ratio, 1.33 to 1. And then television became popularized. Right, yes. And so a lot of people started staying home rather than going out. I mean, this is just the oversimplified version of this of the history here. Mm -hmm. So that was the impetus of theaters or filmmakers starting to use wider aspect ratios. Yep. And there's a little bit of history there that we can talk about. But long story short, 
you know, now we have these handful of aspect ratios that have developed over time for different reasons. And unless you are into the weeds like we are, it can be kind of confusing as to why movies are framed a certain way and why TV shows are framed a certain way and the different aspect ratios that are being used. And I myself have some questions about that, and, and I follow this stuff. For the most part, uh, historically, those aspect ratios were mostly incompatible with each other, right? I mean, to get something from a motion picture to a television screen, you had to make some kind of compromise. And the biggest compromise along the ways was... Well, it's just simply chopped the sides off. You know, it wasn't until the DVD era, as you said, that we, we really started to say, hey, listen, you know, that, that information matters. And the director framed it that way, you know, with some kind of intention. And let, let's go back to it. And, and so I'm pretty proud of, you know, the efforts of places like DVD Resource and Home Theater Forum and the Digital Bits to to really champion the, the original aspect ratio movement and for the most part we won that fight right the studio said hey you guys are right and collectors are willing to pay for the privilege of seeing all the information that the director captured so let's go with that and so if you weren't in the hobby you were the kind of person that was complaining about those black bars whether it be on the top or bottom to to make those incompatible aspect ratios fit on whatever kind of TV that you had. So it's it's a it's a cool part of our hobby that we live through. It is. It was so interesting. And you remember before we had Blu-ray that all we had were those Superbit DVDs? Oh yeah, man. The the Superbit stuff was like, "Oh wow, this is even better than we thought was possible." And Boy, I mean, we've we've doubled the resolution not once but twice since that. So it's a it's it's been a pretty cool journey. That fifth element super bit was probably I think people consider that more valuable than gold. <laughs> I also remember people during that time were dramatically saying. <gasps> We're never going to get HD. Yeah, it felt like a long period of time where we were, you know, we had all the richness that DVD provided, but we knew that so much more was possible. And then we went to Blu-ray and we're like, all right, we don't need anything else. And then we kind of scratched our head and said, you know, do we really need to go to 4K? And, you know, now we're deep into the 4K transition. And it's like, hey, we're starting to hear rumbles about 8K. (laughs) (laughs) And so that would be, you know, literally uh, four times four times four resolution of what DVD was. So you're talking, you know, 64 times the resolution of DVD. And so where will it end? I don't know. The later releases of DVD, I mean, they started getting encoding really good. But I don't know if you remember those old original flipper discs. Oh, yeah. Or the non-anamorphic discs. Yeah, and we'll have to touch on that anamorphic ratio, you know, what that all entailed too. But, and and you're starting to see that, that kind of stretching and pulling used in these constant image height solutions where they're running things through a different lens to, you know, to get the most out of that information. But fortunately, that technology took a different turn and just said, we're going to give you all the resolution you can handle. And so you don't have to do that unless you're a super enthusiast who wants to go that constant image height route. Let's take a look at the aspect ratios that we have most commonly today. Sure, that sounds cool. So as a starting point, our TVs our projection screens at home are 1.78 to 1 or 16 by 9 
Actually, right. I think it's technically 1.77777, in which they're just rounding it up to an 8. Right. And maybe we ought to explain what, what that 1 point something to 1 means. It's wider than it is tall. So it's 1.78 times wider than it is tall. We use these terms interchangeably. We may say 178 or 16 by 9. So that's our starting point. And as it relates to movies being released theatrically, we're finding that they're either released in either 235 or scope or... 185. Yeah, 185 kind of gets lumped in with 16 by 9 because it's pretty close, right? It is. It might as well be the same bedgum thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but but if you're a purist, then you say, we want it to be exact. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And if you look at the back of DVDs, just to see what the aspect ratio of the film is, very infrequently, you'll see something that says 1.78 to 1. And I think the most famous example of this is Avatar. It literally says 1.78 to 1, not 1.85. And I I thought that was interesting. And, you know, part of that too may be that the capture mechanism and the tools that Hollywood is using to produce that doesn't always line up precisely with what consumers have. So you've got those intermediary formats that, you know, eventually, you know, get transmogrified down into something that us uh, normal humans can watch. (laughs) Right, like these digital cameras now are shooting in 5K or 6K, which is not a consumer resolution. And I think what they're using that extra resolution for so they could, in post-production, maybe frame the shot a little differently or crop it here and there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, And so as a photographer, I tend to do what's called shoot for coverage, Right. And that means that 90% of what I'm taking as a photographer, I know isn't going to make it into the final product as shot. And and Hollywood's doing the same, right? They've got, if you ever see the, the setup of a Hollywood shoot or a television shoot, they've actually got framing lines on the monitors that they're using so that they're overshooting and knowing that they're going to have to crop and that they've got the resolution that they can take advantage to make the most artistic piece of the pie as it were from what they've got so you don't want to waste it you know you don't want to you right. know have to cut in too much but you also have a little bit of flexibility in case oh shit we got a a boom in the way or you know mike mike stand that's showing or something like that <laughs> yeah and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But let's get back to 235. Sure. Even that's not precise anymore. Okay. At one point, it was 235 to 1. It was an, I'm going to quote here an article from red.com, red being the camera manufacturer. Right. 235 was an earlier SMPTE widescreen standard prior to 1970. Really, what, how these movies are being framed is in an aspect ratio of 239 to 1. That's actually the most technically accurate aspect ratio. Okay. But to confuse things even further, people are just rounding that up to 240, 2.4 to 1. <laughs> so it's not even not even that far, but it gets rounded up. That's nice. So half the time I'm sitting there looking at the back of these DVDs 
And sometimes we'll say 239, but sometimes we'll say 240. Okay. And I'm just wondering if the guy who's putting that on the back is just making a determination, well, it's just easier 240, or that's what our that's what our studio yeah. you know, says versus another studio. I really don't know. But I think they really are, in fact, the same thing, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could be wrong, but according to this article, 240 is just an incorrect rounding from 239 to 240. They're better experts at it than me. I would certainly kind of lump them together, but we definitely have people who want the exact detail on on our forums <laughs> and and we cater to that right we, we, they're, they're not wrong but it's just not something that's all that interesting to me or or certainly a layman for sure i think for the purposes of this conversation i've just been so used to saying two three five right and that just lumps everything that's close to it in together right yeah two three five is equal to two three nine two four oh or as some people may refer to it as scope, I think yeah. that's not how I usually do it. But I had a couple of filmmaker buddies back in college who they say scope and I'd be like, okay, well, what's the number, man? Give me the yeah. number. Yeah. Right. Because for, for us as consumers, we've got to go out and buy the physical manifestations of that aspect ratio, right? We got to buy a screen somehow that has baked in that size. And so we realize that every movie that's going to be shown on it is compromised a little bit. We want to get the best bang for the buck for what we're spending. So, Sam, I'm going to make a controversial statement here. Uh-oh. <laughs> we need a klaxon alarm. we have to dig one of those off the internet. <laughs> yeah. And I-, I think perhaps you may have heard me say something to the effect before but i'm because i'm now looking at my giant screen down here and understanding how the sausage is made so to speak with these films i'm questioning the need for an aspect ratio wider than 1.78 or 16 by 9 oh boy now you've hit my wheelhouse because because that specific question is what really juiced me up for for doing this conversation today. (laughs) And we're not going to pull out specific posts on Home Theater Forum, but if you go searching for them, you can (laughs) definitely find me being a little salty about this. But yeah, there's definitely a contingent of people that whenever somebody new to projection comes on and says... Hey, should I buy a scope screen or just a 1.8, you know, a 16 by 9 screen? People magically come out of the woodwork to start talking about all these ultra wide and constant image height things. And if you have decided that, you know, one of those types of solutions is your preferred solution for your home theater, I say amazing, great, send me an invite when it's up and running. And and I will be there. But if somebody is relatively new to the hobby and this is their first projector, man, it strikes me as really, really troubling to send them down the constant image height and 2.35 screen rabbit hole, as it were, because they are setting themselves up for a... You know, something that they're going to have to need a lot of hand-holding on, right? Absolutely. And, now, one of the questions I was going to ask you was, what you know, what is your favorite aspect ratio? As if that was something like your favorite color. But you know, when I think about it, that the 16 by 9 solution is just such a grand bargain that makes sense from so many points of view that to tell somebody new, 
hey, just ignore all the benefits of doing that and you're going to get a more enveloping experience under 235. Nobody doubts that, right? That is going to be the ultimate way to see movies that were filmed that way. But for all the content that's out there that's today being made in 16 by 9 and that includes sports, includes almost every television show, and yeah, there's one or two exceptions. Uh, again, those are listed on the threads. I think one of the Star Treks may be slightly off and maybe even The Handmaid's Tale. But all the sports, all the TV, all the video games, and a good chunk of movies being filmed today are very, very close or exactly in 16 by 9. So telling somebody that you give away all of that perfect fit or the benefit of, I don't want to use the word handful because it's a lot more than that, but the very specific experience of watching ultra-wide movies will be better under that solution. I don't see it. And again, if that's your chosen solution, I absolutely salute that. Invite me over. I'll bring the beers. We'll watch a couple movies because I would love to see one really, really well done. But I think for the average person, not even just the average Joe, but the average home theater forum viewer want 16 by 9 is going to be our bread and butter for the long future of this hobby. Sam, a lot of good points there. I think to really answer these questions, we have to look at the history of matting. I think we have to look yeah. at the history of anamorphic lenses and such. And sure. by no means is this conversation going to be as in-depth as you may want but we, like I said, we will have a bunch of links in the show notes. You can go yep. and peruse at your own time. But the concept of hard matting versus soft matting. Yep. Okay. Let's just take soft mat, right? I think that's where filmmakers would go. They would shoot at a, a roughly four to three ratio and then send that entire film stock to the theater and the projectionist at your local theater would apply mats and actually physically block the light from projecting. Right. So you create an artificial aspect ratio based upon the content that you've shot for coverage, right? So rather rather than locking it in at the duplication level, you let the projectionist at each individual movie house fill their screen as best they can. So... If the projectionist wasn't doing his job right, you could potentially have some framing issues. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, you might see a, a mic or something like that that wasn't supposed to be in the frame. <laughs> and sometimes, oh, here, here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read an, a snippet here from from widescreen.org. The use of soft mat has resulted in unintended gaffes when such movies are converted to another format with the mats removed which happened often with quote-unquote full-screen DVDs. Yep. Because the mats usually hid boom mics and other equipment, <laughs> such equipment could then be seen in the open mat version. So back in the day when they were offering the widescreen original aspect ratio in addition to the full-screen DVDs, sometimes just because they were lazy, they would just offer the open mat version instead of the cropped version because doing so means that we'd actually have to go through the process of cropping it and then re-exporting it which would not be that hard so it was just yeah. really uh, an oversight or just simply laziness 
Yeah, and, and I've certainly heard stories about people buying those movies and then being bewildered by seeing those things. But because we were leading the charge for original aspect ratio, I, I never bought any that had those issues, but it's certainly a consideration and part of our history. You know what that's like now? That's almost like getting the IMAX version of the film. Oh, and yeah, we, we actually need to talk about the IMAX formatting too, right? But, but I'm not sure what, what specifically what you mean this time. Meaning to say how if you go to the, your IMAX theater, let's let's say Dark Knight Rises or something, right? Okay. Th- there would be the 235 portion, and then during the action scenes or oh. whatever, it would, it would open up, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, it's so, so, analogous so, to that is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying, and I love this because it's almost subconscious sometimes, and sometimes you're saying, I see this effect happening. But when movies do have those multiple aspect ratios within them, that's rare and pretty cool. So let's talk about the IMAX uh, aspect ratio. Do you have there what ratio that is? So if we're talking old school film IMAX, yes. that, that was, I believe, according to my notes here, that, that was 1.43 to 1. Yeah. So, so slightly wider than the 1.33, 1.43 1.4 to 1. Yeah, but close enough that it's closer to TV than it is to it is. you know traditional 16 by 9 movies, yeah. But instead of saying it was less wide, you could actually say that it was more tall. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, if, if you were to do just a calculation based on pure resolution, that's absolutely true. Because the screens there were tall. I mean, yep. they're yep. stories high. Yeah. Again, that whole industry, the call it the IMAX sub-industry of the movie industry is, is really cool. We're only down to a handful of them showing actual film anymore. Um, there's none near me. Right, because they converted all of them to, yeah. a, to a digital projection. So now yeah. when you say digital IMAX projection, you still got to ask, well, which one? Is it the yep. Cineplex version, the Limax, yep. Yep. or is it the Smithsonian version, right? Right, yep. And I have here something else where the digital IMAX is more of the in the ratio of 1.9 to 1, although I'm not entirely certain about that. Okay, let's go back to this multiple aspect ratio thing, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So the the whole reason why multiple aspect ratio movies exist was because it's really freaking expensive to film in IMAX, and then you double that for whenever they did it in 3D, right? So the action sequences were done, you know, in that IMAX film format to get all the grandeur of those scenes. And then they had to pay, you know, enormous sums of money to to convert the effects and add CGI to stuff like that. But for the rest of the movie, right, they chose something a bit more mainstream, using regular film stocks that, you know, don't cost an arm and a leg. When you actually project that back, sometimes it's a subtle transition between the two, and sometimes it's just shocking and stands out. And sometimes they, they actually cut back and forth in the middle of action sequences, and, and it can be kind of jarring. So it all comes down to, you know, what the director intends and what the director wants you to get out of that experience. And directors that have chosen to use IMAX have gone for impact and want you to really feel like you're getting your money's worth out of those action sequences. Yes, and a couple of things come to mind. Number one, you just know that if those old-school IMAX film cameras were quiet enough 
Christopher Nolan would have used that for every single shot. I just read that he didn't use it because they're just so loud. You can't use it for small or, or quiet, intimate scenes. So, so, oh, is that true? So it was a, it was about noise factor rather than cost. Chris Nolan is is you know he's never going to go over budget. You know, he's a very efficient filmmaker. So mm-hmm. I just kept on reading how those things are so noisy that it makes it really difficult to do the intimate, quiet dialogue scenes. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. I guess back to the point of this soft mat, from the historical perspective of of doing a movie that way, distributing a movie with this soft mat approach, when a studio was lazy and quote-unquote lazy in releasing it on DVD for the home video release, they would just use the open mat version. While it's an anomaly, it's kind of a way for you to view the film. It actually makes sense to do it that way for four by three TVs because you actually get, you do actually get another version of the movie. You get uh, to see more of the, the top and bottom of the frame that was originally produced in theaters. So I would actually rather have that because I mean, that might be an instance where if you knew that it was an open mat home video release, you're getting more of the image. You're getting a less cropped version of, of the film. Right, so that that's a compromise, right? Where do you draw the line? Is it important to see more information that was captured, or do you want to see what the director intended for film audiences, or do you ever even really know if the director you know, was thinking, hey, maybe this will look great on both? So it's tough, especially with some of these things that done 20 and 30 years later where you can't just walk up to the director and ask them because they're simply dead or, you know, just not, <laughs> you know, not available anymore. So I think there's people on our forum who would probably advocate for having both versions. And I applaud that for sure. I mean, if you are such a fan of a specific film that you will spend the money to get them in both versions so that you never have to make that choice on your own, good on you. Personally, I'm going to come down on director's intent every time, and I will live with that side of the compromise. So that was soft mat. Hard mat is when, again, quoting from widescreen.org, hard mat involves masking the frame in camera during the shoot. So they're matting it before it even hits the film. And so the compromise with that hard mat, right, is that you are simply not capturing as much data as your camera could be doing, right? Yeah. So you're lo- you're locking for intent, but technologically you're kind of going with one arm tied behind your back. Yeah, so if you're shooting a squarish frame of film and you're then cropping the top and bottom, whether it be to a 185 or to a 235, so that you can have a wider image in your theater so that you can differentiate your product from TV at home. Well, I suppose due to the economics of film and the dimensions of the the aspect ratio of the film frame itself, if you're working with what you got, then I guess that makes the most sense. Yep. Where it starts getting interesting, though, is using that film and applying an anamorphic lens on here. Yeah. So I was wondering if that's where you were going with this, because, yeah, that... That is just such a cool technology that they were able to, to do that. And, and we really need to explain how that works. We're trying to fit more image onto the same frame size on the film. Right. And people were clever and they came up with anamorphic lenses. And it essentially 
it allows the lens to capture. Sam, you do photography. You could probably explain it better than I could. So the easiest way that I can say is that you can take the entire frame that the camera is able to capture and actually by distorting the photons, really what it comes down to, the light optical coming light, through. Right. Yeah, the optical light coming in to kind of squish it almost, it actually fits a wider image into the area that you're able to capture. And so when you reverse that, it comes out as widescreen, although the capture mechanism was square or, you know, whatever format that you've, you know, squished onto without a, you know, recognizable loss in resolution or detail. So that to me really is the true definition of widescreen. It's, it's really opening your, your view wider than what would typically be possible. So if you were to go shoot a movie in anamorphic, like what, Tarantino did that with some of his movies, right? Yes. Where you're aiming the camera towards a mountain, and if if not for this lens, you wouldn't be able to get the widest view of what your camera is pointed at. Now, here's where I have conflict. You take this film, you take this image, which is true widescreen, you're projecting it in the theater onto your, your 235 screen, and at the theater, the experience of seeing a 235 image, it is literally bigger than the 185 image because yes. really what, they, what most theaters have is they have a 235 screen and the curtains go in and out to frame whether or not it's a 235 or 185. You right. know how excited you get when you go in there and a few minutes before the movie starts, the curtains start moving? <laughs> to yeah. show you like, oh, the screen's getting bigger. It's growing. Look at that. We are in for a treat tonight. And we say that as, you know, enthusiasts, right? You you and I get that. And uh, I don't know that the general public understands that. And I got to be honest, it's been a long time since I saw uh, screens actually reconfigure. I was just uh, watching a Dolby Vision, a Dolby Cinema movie this weekend. And, you know, it was obvious that they were just simply throwing stuff up in the middle of the screen because... Each of the trailers was was formatted differently. A lot of theaters just don't even have those mechanical, I guess they're called louvers, right? To move the the edges and the curtains around anymore. So we've <laughs> lost that in a lot of a lot of cape, you know, a lot of theaters now. Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners remember those days. <laughs> yep. If you take that approach, you take it, you have an anamorphic production, okay? Anamorphic presentation then you really are truly getting the benefits of what widescreen has to offer. The problem, the struggle, the internal conflict that I have now is two things. Number one, movies today, their longest shelf life is going to be home video. They're only in theaters for a relatively short period of time. Yeah, for the vast majority of them, for sure. You have, yeah, I mean, it's like this little blip that, yep. that, their act, that their existence is in theaters only. So then I, qu- I would question to the filmmakers, taking that into consideration, do you still frame the movie for the theater or do, or do you frame for, you know, home video? Yeah. Gore Verbinski actually touched on this exact subject when they released A Cure for Wellness okay. on Blu-ray. I'm reading from an article here, an interview that he did with Ain't It Cool, Gore Verbinski, he says, 
What's different about this movie than any other movie I've made is that I shot it in 1.78. It was composed on the set in native 16 by 9. Over the years, I was frustrated seeing a 2.40 movie or a 185 movie reframed to 16 by 9 or even 4 by 3 on some airlines. So I just reversed engineered the thing from the outset and said, I'm going to use the high def format, not in terms of the resolution, but the aspect ratio from the beginning. So he knew that the shelf life here was really weighted more towards home video. And uh, he had that in mind when artistically putting this film together, you know? I follow a lot of directors on Twitter and Bloody Disgusting and Ain't It Cool and, and all those sites. And it's definitely a consideration for them. But your baseline question, down that line lays madness. Because you can say, well, maybe we should be formatting for iPhones and for smaller devices. Because you and I are going to watch things at 120 inches. But there's a, a not insignificant part of the populace that's going to watch these things on tiny phones so it's definitely a concern and personally i'd rather directors get the best amount of detail and framing that fits their story best and worry about the home delivery afterwards but i definitely hear it the technology plays just such an integral role that it makes sense to at least talk about it before you film i guess i just feel a little cheated when movies are cropped to 235 because it's not the same even though they present the same, me, I know that it's not the same. I'm just saying movies filmed with anamorphic lenses versus movies that are presented as 235, but they were not shot anamorphically. I see. I know on the back end, well, there was more to that film frame and they're just cropping it. And so it's. Oh, so you're saying you're losing, res you're worried about losing resolution to get the wider vistas? In my mind, I know that it's just a square image that's had its top and bottom cropped. I see. And that it's yeah. not actually capturing anything wider than a standard frame could capture because yeah. it's not. So I feel a little cheated. I can appreciate that. And again, you're not wrong. Personally, I judge what I'm actually seeing rather than what could have been, though. You know, I, I guess oh, that's I know. where I stand. Yeah, this is a yeah, total... I, I totally get where you're going with it, though. Perhaps most people don't have this type of quandary. But I feel like just getting back to the home video release side of things, if I'm sitting here at home and I'm watching a whole lot of movies at home and I'm sitting here and I have these black bars on my screen where I know I could have image, then I'm starting not to feel so great about 235 anymore because at home... Oh, I see what you're saying. At home, it's presented as Ooh. a smaller format. In theaters, oh, we... it's presented as a bigger format because it literally is wider. Right. So you're ready to get the hate mail on this, right? <laughs> yeah. I, where, where am I? Yeah. <laughs> Please tell me where I went wrong, but yeah. I'm just saying oh. it doesn't make any sense knowing that they're shooting more image than it could fill my screen. If you want to feel bad about yourself, you're making the same uh, arguments that people did back in the pan and scan <laughs> uh, era, so... I don't know. I, I, I definitely uh, have, have never approached it in that way, but you're not the first person that I've heard say that. And I'll give you another example. Again, I, I do most of my viewing at the Dolby Cinema here in Maryland, and a friend of mine I thought was going to go see Hustlers, and he wrote back, oh man, it's not filling the screen. And they have a 235 screen there, 
and Hustlers, I know, is filmed in, in 178 or 185. And he wrote Abominable and with uh, one or two exclamations. And as it turns out, he wasn't actually talking about Hustlers. He went to go see the movie Abominable and wasn't really complaining about it, but he, he did note that it wasn't filling the full 235 screen because it's, you know, it's animation and, and they never go... Well, maybe Rango did, but for the most part, you know, animations don't go full super wide. I did notice that, but then I had a, <laughs> I had a problem where I bought the collector's box set of the Ice Age movies for my kids, and they started off one seven eight or one eight five, and then the last few in the series went to two three five, and I'm like, what really? are you doing? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I approve. Really? I didn't approve. No, no. <laughs> because, first of all, why would you... You're changing the look and the feel of the series. Yeah. You know, and they're doing... They're going two, three, five. Why? So that's a movie where I definitely would have thought that they would have approached the home video more than they would have the theatrical, right? Uh, I mean, I know some of the, the Ice Ages have had huge box offices, but I, they haven't all, as far as I'm if I'm remembering right. So you would think that they know that something like that is going to be on constant replay on kids' TVs. Exactly. It's an artistic format, and that's what the directors wanted to do. So even if the directors are directing animation, I, I, I still feel that's valid. If they shot movies anamorphically, and there was a home video product that could accurately translate that anamorphic production, then my opinion might be a little bit different because right now, Blu-rays are encoded with the black bars baked into it, right? Yes. Now, that if you if you take a step back towards the anamorphic DVD releases, yeah. they got real creative. Yep, They took sure. full advantage of the resolution they had, Yep. and that was great. And so there's really no equivalent to that on Blu-ray. And I'm not sure what they're doing. I guess it's, is it the same for UHD? Are the black bars encoded there too? Yes. Yeah, they're fully baked in. I don't know. That's resolution that we're not using. That's light that we're not seeing. Well, I mean, this is why we can't have nice things, Brian. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it comes down to compromise. All technology is a compromise. And anytime I see a product advertised as a no compromises solution, as an engineer, my head, I start scratching my head because uh, everything's a compromise. And Well, I love the 1.78. I think that's perfect. I just, yeah. like you said, games, TV shows, sports, just, just basically everything. Yeah. And if the shelf life for any given widescreen 235 movie for theaters is less than a month, then what's the advantage? And especially yeah. now since people are watching things on their phones, like literally. Not that I would advocate for that, but, I mean, that's just the reality these days. It comes down to appreciation of the art form rather than, you know, the the technology. And that's how they wanted to tell that story. And I'm going to back the directors on that every time. Let's talk about aspect ratios in the theater and at home. Okay. Okay, and I, I have some notes here. Interstellar. Interstellar was presented theatrically in the following aspect ratios. 1.43 to 1. 1.78, 1.9, 2 .2, 2.2, and 2.39. 5. Five different aspect ratios. Where the heck did it go 
in your science museum IMAX theaters. Oh, in the domes? Like all the Smithsonian in DC. Yeah, okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's where I saw it. Air and Space Museum out in Virginia, actually. But for the home video release, it goes back and forth between 1.78 and 2.39, which I really think is the best you could do, considering. <laughs> On that note... Really, in this day and age, I would like to take back the term full screen and repurpose it. I believe that 1.78 is now considered full screen. Ooh, again, uh, I can hear the hate mail being typed up in the background. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard people uh, say similar things, but uh, I think that the pain is still there. Oh, I know. It brings back yeah. old memories. Yeah. And in, and in fact, uh, I've seen threads on like Reddit and stuff like that where somebody's like, this stupid widescreen movie's not filling the full screen. And again, they're not wrong, right? They paid a couple thousand bucks for a real nice OLED TV or whatever they have. And they're like, well, I'm not getting everything out of my TV, but yeah, you are. If the compromise is to cut the sides off. You know, I, I don't know what else to tell you, dude. It's tricky. Black bars got to go somewhere sometimes. Really, if you missed out on the IMAX presentation of Interstellar or even Dunkirk, which was the same thing, mm-hmm. then there's a good portion of the frame that's now gone. You'll never be able to see it again unless they revive it in these theaters. Wait, no, that doesn't sound right to me. I would think that in in the home version, you're going to get everything that the director wants you to see, right? And he is formatting it for those format changes are so that he can use the medium that he captured with and his cinematographer captured with so that you're getting specifically what he wanted you to see. Oh, for sure. But I'm just saying the 1.43 frame will never get that. You're saying that there was top content that's cut off? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If your starting point is the IMAX screen at the Smithsonian Theater, right, with that 1.43 image, you have all of that real estate to take advantage of. And that's exactly what the IMAX film camera allows Nolan to do is to take full advantage of the height aspect of, of the IMAX frame. But if your height now at home is is not as tall, proportionally speaking, then there is a little bit on the top and bottom that you won't get at home that you could get at the theater. So that was an event movie. You know, His movies are event mm-hmm. movies, and it's almost like a ride when you go and see them. And I'll forever be grateful that I got to go see Dark Knight Rises and IMAX and Interstellar and IMAX. But now those are just memories. I can't re-experience that same aspect ratio anymore. I certainly sympathize with that, but I would come down on the director film knowing that he was going to have those multiple aspect ratios and that the stuff that you got to see in those tops and bottoms of those frames was not extraneous, but, but certainly not critical. No, you're absolutely right. And this is a minor nitpick. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm just happy I'm getting any IMAX material. Sure. Uh, I I think a a worse offender are things like, in recent history, Black Panther, 
being released in uh, a digital IMAX presentation. They were promoting this ahead of the film. I go see the IMAX and you'll get more on the top and bottom, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. They, they didn't do any of that for the home video release. It's just the straight 239. They could uh, have very easily, but they chose not to. I sound like an apologist for the directors, but there was a lot of feedback that people weren't really digging the changing aspect ratios too, right? That is a mass market movie. And so, again, it's a compromise. What is the best compromise? That director said, I want it to be steady for the home release. And, I mean, I have that Ultra HD. I I don't have a single complaint about how it looks, but I understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. One of the Mission Impossible ones, the one that Brad Bird directed, what was that? Ghost oh, Protocol? Four. yeah. Well, he was even asked, like, on an online question and answer forum, <laughs> you know, are you going to release it? An IMAX, an IMAX version on home video? And he said no. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure why the director would choose to do that. I think what you said is a good point about mass market film versus more of a niche film and making yeah. that determination. Otherwise, I, I don't really understand. Getting back to your point about how 16 by 9 is, is really the standard and how we see some deviations even with things like Handmaid's Tale or House of Cards, both of which are in two to one. Okay. So I knew one of them uh, had it, and I was right on that then. Yeah, yeah. And I I thought that was kind of an interesting aspect ratio. It it just seems like, to me, understanding, again, how the sausage is made, I feel like the people making these shows wanted to present them more of in a theatrical light rather than TV, but not be so obvious about it. It's it's a subtler aspect ratio. You know, you're not getting the full black bars of the two three five, but it's not quite one eight five either. There may be things in the calculus that we're not even thinking about. Like both of those shows are somewhat dystopian. Where was that kind of weird aspect ratio chosen to kind of throw the viewer off a little bit from the start? I, I don't know. I I don't know what their full calculus was. And I generally don't find myself questioning those types of things when I watch something, but more appreciating it and say, all right, this, this is how they intended it, and there was a reason for it, and uh, I'm going to go with it. That's a good observation. Kind of, it, it puts you off, but you're not really sure how or why. But the two-to-one aspect ratio, I feel like I saw that somewhere, somewhere else, and I wonder if it might be the Jurassic Park series because mm-hmm. the the first three were done 185, but then when they did the Jurassic World, I think they started moving more towards a 2.2 or just a 2 to 1 mm-hmm. ratio. They, they, they switched it up for these, these, these recent ones, and um, I'm wondering why they did that. It could also be tied to the technology that they're capturing with, right? I don't know the native aspect ratio, the red camelas or the Aries or something like that, but... It may, again, allow them matting flexibility that we're not considering either. So, And it could be any part of their production pipeline that the capture makes the most sense. Hey, I got a question for you. Let, let's go with this. Okay. What is the widest film of all time? Is it Ben-Hur? From memory, well, we can look this up. Uh, I think it's was something called The Robe. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's still in that whole Christian epic genre. Yeah, Ben-Hur was like right up there with it. We're talking like two point in the two point sevens, you know that range. Tarantino did Hateful Eight in two point seven six. Oh, okay, that's cool. You're not really getting the 
the benefit of that at home so much as, yeah. as you are. I know he took that around to like traditional old school film projection theaters. A thread at Blu-ray.com says uh, Abel Gantz's Napoleon from 1927 had an aspect ratio of four to one. Pretty wild. Did you ever go to Disney World and they had the whole circle vision? That's like an infinite aspect ratio. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was pretty cool. And it says Ben-Hur had 2.76 to 1. So I guess just the basic point of my inner conflict here is I feel like those people back in the late 90s, early 2000s, who just wanted the image to fill their screen. And again, they had a point, right? I mean, especially given the quality of broadcast and even the quality of DVDs in that time frame, if you weren't filling the screen, you weren't taking full advantage of the technology. I get it. I get it. It's not and has never been a wrong opinion, right? I I fell on the OAR side in in that battle and and that ultimately won out for the for for the vast majority of things. But yeah, it's valid. I remember as a kid when that title card would, would come up at the beginning of the movie when watching it at home, it would say, you know, this film has been modified from its original version. Yeah. But then the movie just looked fine and I'm like, what the heck are they talking about? It wasn't until much later where my dad got a copy of Terminator 2 on VHS, but in the, you know, the original aspect ratio. And he showed it to me and it was difficult for me to watch because I felt like I was looking through a letterbox. Yeah. <laughs> you know? well, I'm, that's exactly what they called it that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, why don't, why, why can't I see the whole picture, dad? <laughs> um, and, 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 but you were. <laughs> yeah. And that was just, it. it was, that was a paradigm shift, you know? Yep. That was the first time I'd seen, I understood what widescreen was. Yep. Because uh, you don't really make the connection as a kid. But getting back to this widescreen.org article, uh, I'm going to quote from this article. It says, one of the early arguments against widescreen was that TV sizes were too small and the resolution of VHS, which was 333 by 480 for NTSC, was too low to make widescreen movies worth watching. Widescreen mm. advocates claimed that the lower resolution was not enough of an excuse to justify the pan and scan process and that right. the intent of the filmmakers should take priority. Yep. It continues here. To satisfy both types of viewers, starting in the early 1990s, many VHS tapes and DVDs later on were made available in two formats. The widescreen version and the original aspect ratio, when applicable, and the paradoxically named full screen version (laughs) that was presented via pan and scan or open mat. Yeah. But I want to take that turn back man i really do i feel right. like people have forgotten this and if you ask anybody right. like they're like oh yeah i might have heard that but yeah I, i'm gonna let you have that one but uh, i i think you got a fight on your hands i know i think i'm a decade ahead of my time but yeah. um I, I i may just be the only one using that for a while hey i got a question for you and yeah. it relates do you still have any of those old anamorphic dvds uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I pretty much have everything I ever bought. Right, me too. But have you displayed them on your 1080p projector? And ha- what what happens there? Do they look pretty good? They look pretty decent. Yeah, it's only when I project the non-anamorphic that it's like, oh my god, this is yeah. this is a this is clearly DVD quality. Right. I mean, I I have gone back and I watched a, a couple of early DVD purchases, and I, I can't remember if El Mariachi on. DVD. And I thought it looked pretty good. So 
I mean, I have said that both Blu-ray and uh, DVD were both over-engineered for their time. They they certainly had technologies that the average person didn't catch up to till three or four years into those formats. So <laughs> right. That stuff stands up. And again, it's kind of ancillary to aspect ratios, but I think it just shows that the forethought that went into all of these technologies, that they still hold up pretty well today. Yeah, they do. I mean, I, I still have plenty of DVDs, and, and the only reason why I wouldn't have it is because I just replaced it with the Blu-ray version, you know, the double dip, I suppose. We're way past double on a lot of these, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and it's one of those things where back in the day, I bought the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation in its glorious silver box set on DVD. And back then, you know, those those were the times when seasons were like $110 each. I still to this day have the first season. I never got around to getting any of the other seasons. And so now, mm. I, now I'm thinking, do I rebuy the first season on Blu-ray because I paid so much money for that first season? It was $100. Right. And it, it looks decent. I tell you how I do it, and you're going to hate the answer. Okay. You're going to buy it on iTunes so that you know that if they ever go to a 4K version, you're going to get upgraded for free. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That makes sense to me. Upgraded. Right. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. I've been struggling with this question for years now, and yeah. I've yet to pull the trigger either way, because I know that the Blu-ray release of Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1 has a really cool documentary on how they remastered everything. Mm -hmm. And I really want to see that because the, I just find that stuff so infinitely fascinating. I love all that stuff. At this point, there's just so much content and I'm just struggling for time to get through it all. So. And the great thing is, again, I know you're not big onto the whole digital purchases these days, but you know all the extras come in packaged in and you don't have to fumble through 10 disc set or anything like that. You, <laughs> you sit in your easy chair and you can watch for 24 hours straight. <laughs> oh man, better order some pizza or something, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, get it, make a whole weekend of it. Binge, binge, binge. I came across an interesting bit of trivia here and it, it relates to the lenses and framing and such. I'm going to quote here from widescreen.org. They're talking sure. about... Super 35 and exactly what type of format that is. And it's it's a film format that uses the same 35 millimeter stock as in any other format, except the space that is normally used by the soundtrack is yeah. also used um, for the picture. Anyway, mm -hmm. so it's talking about Super 35 and it's saying how another key factor is that its use of flat lenses allows for certain kinds of scenes to be filmed using forced perspective while keeping the intention of a widescreen release. Oh, okay. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which was a 235 aspect ratio, Peter Jackson used Super 35 because of several scenes that had both Frodo and Gandalf. By placing Elijah Wood farther back in the frame, he appeared to be smaller than Gandalf. This would not have been possible with anamorphic lenses. Yeah. Additionally, flat lenses allow the camera to be smaller, which allows them to be used in tighter areas like the fighter cockpits in Top Gun. Sam, what does that mean? This would not have been possible with anamorphic lenses. What's your so, take on that? So Yeah, yeah. So, so here's the deal. Have you ever used a GoPro? No. 
a GoPro actually has a very, very circular lens, almost like a fisheye, mm -hmm. right? And so if you don't use any kind of correction uh, to display it, you're going to notice a kind of circular effect, right? And if you have two subjects in your frame, one of them is going to appear almost like bloated and the other one might look close to right. But using those anamorphic lenses, right, it's very, very difficult to get the framing right when you have multiple subjects interacting because there's the physics of light going on. You've heard the phrase, the camera adds 10 pounds. Yeah. Same kind of things going on there, right? The anamorphic lenses were a big part of that. It's all the physics of light and everything's getting jammed through a very, very small aperture on a box 15 to 20 feet away from where the action's taking place. And each one of those has technological capabilities and limitations. You know, we've come a really, really long way in 100 years, right? You were talking about stuff that was filmed in the late 1890s. But I mean, even if you add that and what's in the 2000s, you're essentially talking about 100 years of technological evolution. And we've been able to change how we manufacture lenses so that they're aspherical. We've been able to change things, you know, so that they're smaller, that they're faster. But every one of those technologies has its own set of compromises and, and where it excels. So you definitely can't fit an IMAX camera into a fighter jet, right? But you can fit a DSLR and you can fit a whole range of things as small as iPhones and GoPros into things. But each one of those has their own specific look. We're approaching the age of what they call computational photography, where we can use the power of computers to adjust what's in the frame so that the geometry is improved. But still, every lens has its imperfections and ways that it captures things. And that's what they're saying there. I wonder if this relates to this oddity I came across with the Man of Steel Blu-ray. I don't know if you recall this, but I started a thread because I was just so pissed off about why Man of Steel looked so funky and it looked stretched or squeezed or something. No, I don't remember that. It was shot on film. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe it was shot anamorphically but someone i started this thread and i was like why does this look so weird i posted screenshots of what the blu-ray release looked like and then what i thought it should look like i stretched the image so that i felt like the proportions were better and someone mentioned the term anamorphic mumps i believe it was no, i'm not familiar with that yeah it was it was in it i'll see if i can dig that up but and there were screenshots of of past films using different anamorphic lenses were People would look a little squeezed or they would look a little wider than they should be. Right. Hey, have you ever seen the video of the same subject photographed at different focal lengths? I don't think so. Oh, we're definitely going to put that in the show notes and, and I'll send it to you later tonight. But essentially, they, they go from shooting like a bearded guy from a 15 millimeter lens to a 200 millimeter lens. Yeah. And, and you get that whole vertigo type effect. When you do that, when you when you stream them together, the whole face kind of flattens out, and you know, ver versus being very ultra wide at at the beginning. And I think that would be very very illustrative to show people what the effect of using different focal lengths mm. is. Yeah, and that, that'd and, be cool and again it, again it's math, right? So if you've got a thirty five millimeter camera 
and you're shooting at a 20 millimeter focal length, right? You're basically shooting wider than what the image sensor can capture. And if you are shooting a 200 millimeter focal length or 300 millimeter focal length, you're zooming in on a, a very small portion of what the image sensor natively sees. And that warps the actual image collected, right? And so uh, I think you'll appreciate it more once you see it. Mm, yeah, that sounds awesome. It's interesting that we talk about the squeezing and stretching because do you find this to be the case when you go into maybe a barber shop or you know any public place where there's just like restaurants or something where they have the the game on or they have some video on and it's a widescreen video on a widescreen TV but it still looks stretched or squeezed or something? Oh yeah, yeah, and that was more in the uh, DVD realm, but yeah, you still see it today. Or like a high def broadcast that'll just look squeezed somehow yep. or. There's an article that you collected here. I'm going to quote from Empire Online. Although TVs have changed and VHS tapes sit unwanted in charity shops, the ghost of pan and scan haunts us still. Nowadays, the same sort of problem can occur when blissfully unaware viewers have their TV set to the zoom setting. Yeah, zoom setting's a big problem. I see the... um... The thing where they've got the uh, the reality creation stuff too, where they've you know they've got the frame interpolation. That's even worse. Like the smooth motion. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Sorry, I'm I'm trying to find this video for you. I'll, I'll look for it later. Oh, okay. I wanted to talk a little bit more about soft matting because this actually was a problem in the original DVD release of Back to the Future. Okay. They released it, but they got the framing wrong. Yeah, I don't remember hearing about that. Oh, it was this huge mess. They had to, they had to do a recall and everything. And I remember that my brother-in-law actually bought the box set, and you know it said if you know serial number or something was in this digit range, then you could you know send it back, and we'd send you like new copies of it. But everyone was all up in arms about that because they released it after all these years. Remember, we didn't have Star Wars, we didn't have Indiana Jones, and we didn't have Back to the Future on DVD. So finally, Back to the Future comes out, and yep. they got the crapping all wrong. It wasn't throughout the entire movie, but and actually there's, there's a website that documented all of this, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But that was just an interesting little bit of trivia there from the, those days of soft matting and DVD uh, releases. Yeah, I remember I, I got that box set. Of course, I bought that on day one, but I didn't remember what the actual issue was. I probably sat on uh, watching it for a few weeks before, you know, <laughs> until the controversy came out and just got the replacements without really thinking about it. Let's also talk about The Wire and the issue there. Did you, did you hear about the controversy surrounding no. the, the Wire? So no. I never actually have seen The Wire. Have you? Oh, yeah. I've watched all three seasons. I heard it was like really one of the best shows ever. Yeah, and I have the DVD set, and I bought it back when the creator, David Simon, said, we will never, ever, ever put this out on Blu-ray because it's it's designed for the technology at DVD's level, and, and putting it out on Blu-ray would give way too much information and change the look of it. And that lasted about two years, and now you can you know download the whole thing on, on iTunes in, in 1080p. I believe that they released it on Blu-ray with 16 by 9 crop. Oh, really? 
Yeah, because it was it was shot in four three, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like the inverse problem, essentially. They cropped the top and bottom of the original picture. Oh, so you're actually not getting the the original aspect ratio in a worse way. It, it's, right. It's, it's, it's essentially pan and scant. Yeah, it's just going the other direction, vertically instead of horizontally. Have you seen Seinfeld? Yeah, of course, every episode. Okay, I guess what I meant to ask is, have you seen Seinfeld played today? On TV? On HD, right. Yeah, I guess I've seen it at my parents' house where they've got, you know, regular broadcast version over cable. I seem to recall seeing just clips of Seinfeld, you know, replays, but broadcast in widescreen. Yeah, that may be true. And and did it originally go out in four three? It did. But it was shot it was shot on film, right? Right. So they, right. So so they, they, they had everything and knew that they could potentially use it later on. I wondered if it was the same same type of issue there where they're cropping it like the wire or if they're somehow getting a wider frame. I don't really know, but yeah. it, I think the most no, impressive no part was that it was it was actually it was Seinfeld in HD, so they went back and actually remastered it. Yeah, I I I don't remember any kind of cognitive dissonance watching it on TV. So <laughs> so I know a lot of people, you know, have, you know, very very strong opinions on how they remember seeing things. I don't think I have that. I get frustrated when I remember watching a movie and I can't get to that content anymore, a la, you know, Song of the South. And I think that makes it five podcasts in a row where I've been able to bring up yeah. Song of the South. <laughs> but I don't think I've got a, a real gut for feel on watching things in the movie. If if there were subtle differences in framing or color timing or anything like that, I, I don't know that, that I would do that or get upset about that. I don't know if that's tied to my colorblindness or just my engineering-focused mind rather than artistic. So mm. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to bother me the way it does some people. I don't have a high opinion of the movie Justice League that came out a couple years ago. Uh, but I will say this. You want to know the best part about it? What's that? It was shot in 185. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was an interesting choice because, and, and I have a theory as to why, but we had Man of Steel and Wonder Woman and Dawn of Justice, all two, three, five movies. Mm-hmm. But then they did Justice League in 185. And it was originally begun production with Zack Snyder as the director. Right. Who had a hand in all the other movies. So... I was thinking, why did they choose 185? And I'm wondering if it's because of the simple fact that the original Avengers movie was also released in 185 Mm. with all the other Marvels being 235 and because of the success of Avengers, you know, Warner Brothers was trying to capitalize that through any means possible. That's certainly a possibility, but my guess would be that Justice League was going to be much more of an international movie than any of the other DCs. Okay. And uh, the international scene, certainly they've standardized, you know, on 1.85, you know, more than the, the ultra widescreen. I, I think the ultra widescreen stuff is more heavily favored in America than it is outside. Oh, interesting. We invented Hollywood, right? And so we've got the technical capabilities of shooting those ultra wide shoots are by definition more expensive you know, where the industries aren't built up as much, you've got the cinemas catering to those local things too. So I, I don't know. that That's one possibility. But, you know, there's all of these different 
technological and budgeting and business and storytelling things all weigh in on how a studio funds something, how a director wants it to be seen, and how a cinematographer shoot it. So, I mean, it's it's a collaborative thing, and there's so many inputs that, it you know, you almost have analysis paralysis on making those choices. I don't know if you could just boil it down to one thing, you know? So, Sam, let me ask you this. Fire away. When considering your future construction of your home theater. Yes. What screen size or what screen aspect ratio do you go with? Because you have a choice of how yep. you want to do things at home. Yep. And it, it is a choice that I myself encountered. Perhaps you did as well. And I actually considered doing a 235 screen here at home. Mm-hmm. But my mind changed along the way because I realized that doing so would be a little too challenging. For me, it all came down to, you can say, challenge or ease of use or flexibility versus cost. And for me, that 16 by 9, the positives of going that direction so completely outweighed the possibility of doing a constant image height or having something with movable mats on the screen or something like that. I don't want to say I'm lazy, but I definitely tend to go for the best bang for the buck type solutions. You know, when you look at it, the the native resolution, the native format of the projector is 16 by 9. The 16 by 9 screens are so easy to get and assemble and put together that there was just never any consideration of the constant image height or 2.35 even without the constant image height before you even thought about the costs. It just started to get a little too problematic in terms of logistics, I feel. Mm-hmm. Because if you go with a wider screen, fine, that's easy. You can you can order a 235 screen, no big deal. But then the projection is where things get tricky because you, you have the option of just simply zooming the image up. So right. The, the black bars aren't projected onto the screen. And it mm-hmm. fills your 235 screen, but then you got to zoom it back for 16 by 9 content, which right. means you're going to be not using the sides of your screen, which makes home experience more similar to the theatrical experience in which the, your, your 185 movies are like taking up the center portion of your screen. There are projectors that will do that zoom effect without needing the external lenses or anything like that. And, and I appreciate that. And if that's the way somebody wanted to go with their theater, you know, Again, go for it, but just didn't seem to make sense for me. And I thought, well, you know, I could probably do that. If I had to zoom and zoom back, maybe it's not a big deal. But then I thought, well, what am I supposed to do with Interstellar or Dark Knight? <laughs> yeah, it always comes back to Christopher Nolan for you, doesn't it? Well, those <laughs> those are the movies that yeah. you want to project the best, right? Those yeah. are the best looking movies. And so if I did it that way, then my 235 would be taking up the center portion of the 185, which is taking up the center portion of the big 235 screen. You get what I'm saying? I get you. And I think it was for that reason alone, and maybe the issue of subtitles too, because if you zoom, then you don't get any subtitles, and maybe occasionally you want subtitles. The way I boil it down to people is like, I mean, you absolutely can do that, but if you buy that 2.35 screen, then Every TV show, every video game, and every sport event that you're going to watch is going to have black bars on the sides. And that's the strongest argument I can make. Oh, absolutely. And 
maybe that's not such a big deal when you have curtains that move in from the side. And so yeah. therefore you, it tricks you into thinking it's taking yeah. up the whole, <laughs> it's full screen no matter what, but yep. you gotta have motorized curtains. Yep. And you know what? I just decided if, if, if I don't really wanna spend the money on that sort of fluff, <clears throat> then I just gotta go with what's simple. Sure. Because I guess the other option is, is actually adding an anamorphic lens onto the projector. Right, yep. And then doing a little bit of digital manipulation processing to stretch the image vertically through digital processing and then projected into the anamorphic lens, which would then stretch it out horizontally. But then you got to worry about moving the external lens back and forth on and off physically. And then you got to refocus every time. And I just don't have that kind of time. Let me explain it this way. And again, it doesn't really touch on aspect ratios, but... I, I looked at that calculus and was like, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Or I could spend that time and money and fiddliness in my theater to install butt kickers. And I wanted the butt kickers and just couldn't even get to the point where I was like, it makes sense to install that and to spend that time and money. Whereas the 2.35 was never even reached that level of interest for me, if that makes sense. In a perfect world, if you had a million dollars, maybe. If if you could hire someone to just set it all up, you hit a yep. button and it just does it. Yep. Fine. And that was one thing that I, I I was really hoping UHD would solve, but it didn't. If if you're saying that the black bars are still encoded on there, then as far as I know, again, I'm not a technical expert on that, but my understanding is that yeah, there's no kind of anamorphic encode on those, but. Maybe one of our listeners will uh, will chime in and say, "Hey, no, Sam, you're you're completely wrong, and it we are taking best advantage of the scans and going that direction." So, if that's the case, please learn us. I'm wondering what the decision was, why they couldn't do some sort of reverse anamorphic encoding with the Blu-rays to stretch them vertically so that they're encoded that way on the disc, and then rely on the projector or the TV screen to or or this would be where you'd have uh, a two, three, five screen that the projector would then stretch back out horizontally. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here, but I guess they just didn't want that headache dealing with the consumers right. and trying to educate them. They just right. I mean that that's what it comes down to, and and that's why I think I'm right. But again, I could be completely wrong on this. But just what fraction of a single percent would take advantage of that? So but this question comes up from time to time on the yeah. forum. And both of our opinions that we would recommend just sticking with the 16 by 9 screen at home. If you have interest in going to 235 and it's driving you, then yeah, knock yourself out. It's not a wrong decision. It's just more complex and you're going to be the lead dog on that sled. (laughs) Exactly. So I got a question for you. Okay. Where do you see aspect ratios going? Do you think that they will more settle towards... 16 by 9 for movies do you think they will continue to be all over the map as far as director's intent or something else if we're sticking with quote-unquote traditional screens here i want only 16 by 9 that's what i want i see that pretty much being the case Mm -hmm. i think what has a serious chance of disrupting that is virtual reality. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a whole different ball of wax. But yeah, you've got way, way deep technical considerations as to what what an aspect ratio looks like 
in virtual reality from you know something that's fully enveloped to what does it mean to show 2D prepackaged content in virtual reality. I've got all the headsets now, including the latest Oculus Quest, and there's a lot of people working on like movie theater type experiences within virtual reality. And so you can look left, right, up and down and you feel like you're in a virtual movie theater and then you either have a 2D or 3D movie playing on the screen in front of you. That's a interesting challenge to get that right. And I don't, I don't think any of them have really gotten it so that I feel comfortable watching a two hour movie in VR yet. All right. So a couple things. Number one, I forgot that you had all that VR stuff, which is great. And I've always wanted to try that. So... I'm going to have to come up there sometime um, and, and check all that stuff out because that would, I have not done VR at all. And it's so interesting to me. And I would love to experience that. I mean, you've, you've, you've done it for a few years now, right? Yeah, yeah. Come up. It's getting better every six months with new releases. And even the, the Oculus Quest is getting the ability to be run th- over a computer and not fully standalone. And, th- and that, that's going to be a game changer. A lot of cool stuff. So do they define things in terms of aspect ratios as it relates to games or, or videos released in VR? Not that I've seen, but uh, I haven't really been looking for it either. I just wonder how they how they frame it. Like this is uh, like a 180 degree uh, presentation or this is like a even, no, like I mean, even wider every, than every, that? Or? No, I mean, everything's fully immersive. So it's it, it's essentially you're living inside a sphere. And that sphere, um, you know, has boundaries, obviously. There's no limits to it. Oh, sure. I guess what I'm saying is at any given time, if you're if you're just looking straight ahead and not looking around, what is your field of view? How do they how they define that field of view? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And that and that's one area where the current crop of headsets is not great. It's um two hundred and seventy degrees, something like that. I'd have to look it up, but it's about three quarters of what your actual field of view currently is. And so that's one of the areas where uh, there's a lot of technological advancement going on with bigger panels, with curved panels and things like that. So we're, we're by no means mature on that yet. So looking at, uh, looking at IMDb, there are, over 50 movies released in 2.35 in 2019. Uh-huh. It's by no means going down at all. I am actually continually surprised to see how many movies. My general feeling is that most of the time movies are released in 2.35 and that 1.85 is less common. Right. Now, that's just anecdotal based on my experience. Um, I guess maybe because it's the movies that I'm interested in are oh, more yeah. catered to that. Buster, yeah. Yeah, and I'm watching a lot of them at home, and so every time that comes on, I'm like, ow, two, three, yeah. five again. <laughs> I love going to the theater to see that, and I think that's kind of their point, right, is that that's a draw for a lot of people is that you get to see the ultra-wide screens as they're intended in the theater. Oh, sure, yeah, and, and yeah. I agree. If, if you go to the theater, you sit close enough, and you see a 235, you know, half the time, I'm not even noticing if it's 235 or not in the theater because it's just the screen, and the image fills yep. the screen. Yep. I'm just kind of a, I'm just your average, everyday guy, just like, oh, hey, yeah, there's a picture. It's big. Right, Joe Sixpack, right? 
Yes, and it's only at <laughs> home when I notice this. But yeah, I can certainly sympathize with folks like you that want that full screen experience. So, so I guess just to wrap up here, one little funny little uh, issue here is that because people are using their cell phones now as camcorders, essentially, yeah, I, a lot of people aren't getting that they need to rotate their camera. Oh boy, uh, now you're preaching to the choir. I'm, I'm with you a million percent, but keep going. Well, all I'm saying is I'm quoting from scientificamerican.com here, an article you pulled up, and there's a guy who's saying, and so far, incoming generations show no inclination to rotate the phone to solve the problem. Of, yeah. You know, you have the standard portrait aspect ratio mm-hmm. that people are taking their selfies in, et cetera, et cetera. Or even videos that they submit to the news or America's Funniest Home Videos or whatever it may yeah. be. And what do they have to do? They have to project that skinny image on a widescreen TV and fill in the, the sides with just a super blown out stretched version yeah. of that same video. Hate you know what I'm it. Yeah, hate it, hate it, hate it. Hate it. Oh, Damn God. millennials. I keep... <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Like, Are I you keep, a millennial technically? You know, technically... That's up for debate. I don't okay. consider myself to be a millennial. I consider myself okay. to be a part of that micro generation. Uh, okay, the transition. It was between yeah. millennials and Gen X. Yeah, yeah. Gen think, Y, right? Well, I think the like the scientific name that someone coined was Xennial or Xennial. Oh, Xennial. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. It's the people who grew up with analog technology. Gotcha. then reached adulthood and got all the digital okay. the internet stuff so yeah so you you can be with me in blaming this on millennials so. oh for sure yeah I'm just <laughs> like damn the, kids get off my lawn no one think exactly <laughs> and that's why i tell my wife i said honey if you ever shoot anything just simply turn your phone please turn the phone yeah. and she's she's now adopting that and she got nice <laughs> She'll point it out on TV when we're seeing something like, oh, they didn't hold their phone right. I'm like, that's right, honey. Yeah. Maybe for the next uh, video contest, I'll do a public service announcement, getting yeah. teens to turn their phone. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, man. So uh, I, I'm going to go back to my full screen Blu-rays here <laughs> and have a, with a big grin on my face. <laughs> Once again, I want want to send a shout out to all of our listeners on Home Theater Forum and beyond. You guys have been amazing. The response to the Criterion episode was uh, just unbelievable. And uh, we're definitely going to take Brian with us next time we go up there. It's just been fun, man. I, I when, when you invited me to do the podcast, I was super excited, but a little bit nervous. And <laughs> I, I, think, I think we've found our niche. We found our, our speed and... We hope you guys will join us for the for the rest of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I really appreciate you doing this with me, Sam. And um, for those listening, you know, I really appreciate you just joining in on the conversation. These days, I'm not quite of a snob as I once was back in my younger days, <laughs> uh, and I'm trying not to prove as many points online and such. Right. Um, but I, I, you know, so so don't don't give me too hard time if I say full screen and all this other kind of yeah. stuff. But uh, yeah. You know, but we I, do, it's, it's all for fun. Yeah, and we do appreciate everybody's feedback. Some people were like, hey, more more sound effects. And other people were like, less sound effects in it. So we'll try to strike the right balance with that this time. Thanks again. Any last words, Sam? Be aware of aspect ratios, but don't get caught up in the details because it's uh, not, not something that's going away anytime soon. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, hopefully there's some 185 supporters there with me, but we'd definitely love to hear your thoughts um, for yep. sure. So um, until next time, Sam. Okay, Brian. Thanks, everybody. Uh, technical note, because um, because it occurred to me watching the fly sequences. Obviously, we're watching here in sixteen nine. The film was released in two formats, and I, and I've never really gotten a chance to talk about this very much. But uh, we released it in sixteen nine and and uh, uh, two three five to one with cinemascope aspect ratio. Um, and obviously, the thirty five millimeter prints were all in the scope ratio. Uh, and obviously, the IMAX stuff, we tried to take advantage of the height. And I think the, the, the kind of the, the, the highest and best format for this movie is the 16.9, which plays, plays beautifully. And we, we, uh, we basically, what we did is we finished the picture in 16.9, and then we extracted vertically. We took out the, the cinemascope extraction. This was when we were mastering the, the film for, for theatrical release. So it was very easy. We didn't have to do any pan scan or anything, blow up or anything. We just went straight to a 16.9 master. But I don't think too it's never been commented on that I, that I can see in the media, but uh, it's interesting that in the theatrical release of the movie, it played in 3D in, di in nine IMAX digital theaters in both formats, in both scope and 16.9. We did that by basically selecting whichever theater uh, was it was going to look best in, in which format. So sometimes you could see it uh, kind of full height, and sometimes you'd see it uh, uh, in the scope ratio. And that was really based just on how each theater had its own had, it, had its own mask. But for the home, obviously, we want to go with the, with the full picture. I really think it helps with the sense of vertigo underneath the flying creatures to have that little bit of extra frame down there when you're looking down over cliffs and so on. It enhances the sense of height. Even though I love the cinemascope ratio compositionally, uh, I actually found myself falling in love with the movie in 69 uh, as, we, as we went along. And so I actually prefer to watch it in this, uh, in this aspect ratio.